Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 143 and we're back in Cape Town for a moment. It's late 1838 and our new British governor, Sir George Napier, he's in the hot seat and he's already regretting taking up the position. He was trying to make Andries Stockenstrom's Eastern Cape Treaty system a success and this was not an easy task. Napier's main pressure was financial. Before he left Britain, the colonial office had made it clear that they would not accept another war in the Eastern Cape. It had cost the government dearly. Fourteen years after the English settlers landed, the British were forced to defend their subjects during the Sixth Frontier War. Hundreds of soldiers and their material had cost tens of thousands of pounds. The cost of the colonies was a major factor in the government's financial difficulties. The British Empire was vast and expensive to administer. Someone had to pay for the upkeep of the colonial military, the infrastructure, and the salaries of these officials. In the period of 1834 to 1838, for example, the British government spent an average of £12 million per year on the colonies. This represented a significant portion of the government's budget. In 1837, for example, the government spent £12 million on the colonies plus £15 million on the army. According to Hansard's archive of the House of Commons, the British government's budget in 1838 was £51,524,110, with the largest categories army, the navy, and interest on debt. These accounted for over 70% of the total budget. The cost of the colonies had a number of consequences for British politics. Lobby groups were, and remain, a powerful force in British politics, and they opposed any policies that would increase the cost of the colonies while helping to maintain a system that was dominated by the aristocracy. The British national debt grew significantly in the period from £796 million to £829 million, or by 4.2%, and that was in four years. On the other hand, Britain, of course, was benefiting from the colonial access to raw materials, cotton, sugar, timber, these were used to support British industries, particularly textiles, manufacturing, shipbuilding. The colonies created new markets for manufactured goods, which actually helped boost the economy and create jobs back home. For investors and entrepreneurs and connected royalty, it was an opportunity to earn huge sums from these seized territories by building infrastructure, developing new industries and starting new ventures. The strategic importance of its colonies helped England maintain its global power and influence. For example, Gibraltar was a key naval base that helped England control the Mediterranean. India was a key strategic asset, helped England maintain its power and influence in Asia, and Cape Town remained a strategic asset on its main supply routes to India. A small number of wealthy British individuals and businesses benefited the most from this system. The majority of British people did not benefit directly from the colonies and there was a constant political pushback by those who opposed colonial expansion, which was seen as a playground for the rich and blue-blooded empire builders. The opponents included the Radical Party and the Anti-Slavery Party. There were also individuals who voiced the opposition, including the economist John Stuart Mill, the writer William Cobbett, and politicians like Richard Cobden. Cape Governor Napier was far more conscious than his predecessors of the British government's reluctance and to be blunt, inability 
to pay for unnecessary warfare in a colony that it saw as worthless. So the one-armed Sir George's first consideration was to avoid another war at all costs. And ironically, he saw the British settlers as potentially the biggest risk, the most likely to cause a war. These included the editor of the Grahamstown Journal, Robert Godlinton, and what Napier called the cabal of merchants, conniving traders, who were famous for gun-running and profiting from the previous wars. The settlers, furthermore, were furious with Napier that he made it clear he would not entertain commandos and patrols setting off into the Amakosa land across the Fish River. The settlers were raising alarms about stock theft and demanded to be allowed to gallop across the rivers to the nearest Amakosa kraal to demand and seize compensation. Facing most of the backlash was the Eastern Cape Lieutenant Governor, John Hare, who was overwhelmed by complaints and cries from the farmers on the one hand and the Amakosa chiefs on the other. When Chief Makoma heard about the settlers' complaints, he made a bitter remark that, Our people steal oxen and cows, but the government steals with the pen. What had taken place since the last quarter of the 18th century in South Africa was a constant stealing of beasts, of livestock, of horses. The frontier in Southern Africa, interestingly, was often compared to the border between England and Scotland, and the Amakosa were the marauding Scots clansmen, if you like. Because Makoma's clique was so difficult to pin down for non-Kosa, the Scottish soldiers liked calling him Makomo, as in Macintosh. Just a quick aside, listeners of a certain age will remember the Much More Munch Lunch Power broadcast adverts, which featured a character called Makatini. The Scots-English border wars were a brutal and bloody affair, but they also played an important role in shaping the history of both countries. The wars left a lasting legacy of distrust and rivalry between the Scots and the English. Ditto the frontier wars of the Eastern Cape, which shaped the future of South Africa, leading to the struggle movement eventually, the ANC, Nelson Mandela. The Scots and the English fought their bloody border wars for over 400 years from the 12th to the 17th centuries as they tussled over land, resources and pure unbridled nationalism. The border region is always a fertile and strategically important area and both sides there were eager to control it as it was rich in resources, sheep, cattle and timber. The Scots and English developed a strong sense of national identity during this period and the border wars were often seen as a way to assert their independence and superiority. Historians often compare the border or frontier experience of the Eastern Cape with the Australian and American frontiers, although the Cape is considered more complex because the people here were metal workers, forges of iron. They had large settlements. The first peoples of America and Aborigines did not. It's time to cast our eyes further afield, as we do in this series, just to understand how Southern African events were part of a much broader story. This was the period of burgeoning colonial expansion globally, and those who lived on the land before the arrival of mainly European settlers were fighting for their survival. In America, the U.S. government forced the Cherokee Nation to leave their homelands in southeastern United States in 1838 and then marched them to Indian Territory in Oklahoma. This became known as the Trail of Tears. Thousands of Cherokees died from disease, starvation and exposure. This eventually led to the Cherokee War of 1838 and 1839 where a small group of First Peoples resisted the removal from their homelands. The U.S. government responded by sending troops to crush the resistance, and the Cherokee fighters were eventually defeated. 
Then the Mormon War broke out between Mormon settlers and the non-Mormon residents in Missouri, and all Mormons were then expelled from the state as a result of that clash. In Australia, Melbourne was founded on the 30th of August, 1838. A property owner called John Batman from Van Diemen's Land, or modern Tasmania, led a party of settlers to the site of where Melbourne would be founded and bought 600,000 acres of land from the Coolin people. They were an alliance of five Aboriginal nations in south-central Victoria, and their collective territory extended around Port Phillip and Western Port up into the Great Dividing Range and the Loddon and Goulburn River Valleys. That's about the size of Lesotho. The Kulin lived by fishing and cultivating yams as well as hunting and gathering. They initially welcomed the European settlers, but then began to resist when the settlers encroached on their ancestral land. In September 1838, the British government established the Port Phillip District, a new administration part of southeastern Australia, which included the state of Victoria and parts of New South Wales. The British were growing very serious about their new colony down under. Also in 1838, the British signed the Treaty of Watangi with a number of Maori chiefs that established British sovereignty over New Zealand. The Treaty of Watangi is considered to be the founding document of New Zealand and it remains an important source of conflict and debate between the Maori people and the New Zealand state. Turning our attention to Canada, the British were very busy there in 1838, after the Canada-Durham report was published, which probed the causes of the Lower Canada Rebellion of 1837 and 1838. The report recommended that the British government unite Upper and Lower Canada into a single colony, and that it grant responsible government to this new territory. The Durham Report had a profound impact on the development of Canada, and it's considered to be one of the most important documents in Canadian history. These are just a few of the many important historical events that took place in South Africa, Australia, New Zealand and Canada, which have shaped the narratives all the way to the present. It obviously wasn't just politics that began to shift the new world onto a new course. There were also new technologies being imported by settlers, which also had a profound effect on the new territories. These included the Canistoga wagon, which was a large covered four-wheel transport that was used by settlers in America to carry their belongings and families across the frontier. It was sturdy and a versatile vehicle that was well-suited to the rough terrain and unpredictable weather conditions of the prairie. The Canistoga was quite different to the South African ox wagon, which was smaller and lighter. Canistoga wagon was a large, heavy machine. It was typically pulled by a team of six to ten oxen. It had a long, rectangular body with a high arched cover made of canvas, and its wheels were large and had very wide iron rims. It was equipped with a number of features that made it comfortable for long journeys, beds, a stove, and storage compartments for food and supplies. The South African ox wagon was smaller, and the cover of the ox wagon could be made of animal skins when canvas ran out. The wheels of the wagon were smaller than the wheels of the Canistoga and had narrower iron rims, and the ox wagon was typically not equipped with as many features as the Canistoga, but it was still a comfortable and versatile vehicle for travel and transport. It was fundamental in the defence system of the fur trekkers. Another technological advance was the humble log cabin, simple but effective and easy to build from the abundant timber resources on the frontier of America and Canada, although not as abundant in South Africa. Log cabins were never used in the same way here because there were just not enough trees. 
But these cabins can last for centuries with proper maintenance. Many built by pioneers in the 18th and 19th centuries are still standing today. But a more important development in southern Africa was the sod house, especially in areas where timber was scarce. These were built from blocks of earth that were cut from the ground and then stacked to form walls. In South Africa, what was called wattle and daub or mud houses were built. These weren't really blocks of earth, but mud was used as a kind of cement, very durable, and when properly cured, they withstand extreme weather conditions. Mud houses, or wattle and daub buildings, are made from interwoven branches and twigs, which are then plastered with daub, which is a mixture of mud, straw, and water. This creates a very strong and durable wall that improves insulation. Wattle and daub buildings are relatively fire-resistant. The walls are slow to burn, giving occupants time to escape in the event of a fire. Wattle and daub structures are relatively easy to build using very simple tools or, in some cases, no tools at all. In South Africa, they were used by the settlers for a variety of structures, from simple homes to large barns and workshops. Early Southern African settlers also began taking advantage of iron-based tools manufactured in Britain, particularly plows. There were many examples. Cast iron plows, which were inexpensive to produce, although they were relatively brittle. A step up from those were the wrought iron plows, which were more durable but more expensive to produce. Wrought iron plows were often used by farmers who needed a more heavy-duty plow to cultivate tougher soils. The combination plows were both cast iron and wrought iron, different parts manufactured with different sorts of iron. These were more affordable than the 100% wrought iron, but more durable than the cast iron. Farmers were experts and still are at utilising tools depending on the needs and the budget. For example, a farmer who was cultivating sandy soils might use a lighter weight cast iron plough. But if they hit rocky soil, they had to upgrade to a heavy-duty wrought iron device. The first farmers of South Africa, the early Nguni people, did not use ploughs. They dug their furrows and planted their crops using metal hoes, which were smelted in southern Africa, or used various types of wooden digging sticks. By the 1830s, an invention called the South African plough was developed specifically for the conditions in Africa. It had a strong cast iron frame and a sharp blade that was able to cut through tough soils. Earlier, the Dutch plough had been a popular choice among the early trick boys and farmers. It was extremely heavy duty and excellent in rocky soil. The introduction of iron ploughs to South Africa was a technological and social revolution. It had a significant impact on the region's agricultural industry, its economy and its society. If you recall, I explained a few episodes ago how the refugees living around Port Natal in the late 1830s had begun to grow quite a large surplus of food, which they began to sell through the port. This allowed them to become more independent of Zulu King Dingan. Because the people initially farmed using simple digging sticks for cultivation or a hand-held hoe, the major crops included millet, sorghum and maize. These tools and techniques limited the area of cultivation and consequently the agricultural output. Around the 1830s and 40s, the iron-based plough was introduced to the region by the settlers, which represented a fundamental shift in agricultural methodology. The iron plough, with its superior strength and ability to turn over the soil, greatly increased efficiency in preparing fields. This meant that larger plots could be cultivated with the same or even less effort compared to the traditional methods. As a result, agricultural output increased, which in turn had ramifications for trade, economic stability and societal growth. With increased agricultural productivity, 
there was a shift in socio-economic structures. There were evident benefits like food surplus, which led to population growth and the development of more permanent settlements. The surplus also facilitated trade, both within the region and with neighbouring areas. However, it led to the intensification of land disputes and redefined land ownership patterns. Traditional communal land usage came into contention with emerging individualistic tendencies spurred by the potential for increased productivity and profitability. The iron plough's increased efficiency led to an expansion of cultivated areas. While this was economically beneficial, it also raised environmental concerns. Over-cultivation could lead to soil exhaustion, and these early farmers knew better than to plough downhill. For Southern Africans, the use of this important implement meant a shift towards a more intensive agricultural model. This, combined with other technological introductions like improved seed varieties and other practices, played a role in shaping the region's rapidly changing land ownership. As we continue our journey through agricultural history, let's keep in mind that tools and technologies, while seemingly simple, can have a profound and lasting impact on societies and how they develop. Another example of this was the windmill, which was used by settlers to pump water from wells and to grind grain. It was a reliable and efficient source of power, especially in areas where there was no access to livestock or labor to do the job. The oldest windmill in South Africa, the Deneva Moulin Mill in Cape Town, dated back to 1782. Another was built nearby, Mostert's Mill, in 1796, built in Mowbray. Unfortunately, it was gutted in a fire that swept down Table Mountain in 2021. The new manufacturing heartland of Britain was churning out innovative tools, and these were snapped up by their frontier settlers. Another simple revolutionary item which began to appear on the South African frontier and in Australia was the shearing shed, where sheep were stripped of their wool. Shearing sheds were typically large and well-ventilated, and they were equipped with shearing tools, These were and are an essential part of the global wool industry. I recently had access to a Foot Trekker diary which included a fairly lengthy list of goods that were packed into the ox wagon which makes for interesting reading. Most of these goods are recognizable today so here goes. The list included biscuits, rusks, sacks of grains including corn, wheat and rice, dried fruit, dried onions, sugar, salt, spices, herbs, tea, coffee, biltong, vinegar, wine and brandy. Kitchen goods included cutlery, crockery, kettle, pots, pans, and pitons, roasting pans, grinders, presses, buckets, water containers, and milk pails. Lists of clothing included general items, trousers, dresses, blouses, cuppies, shirts, jackets, shoes, as well as a sewing kit, wool, linen, bed linen, blankets, cleaning cloths, tools such as woodwork tools, smithing tools for the metalwork, making musket balls, fixing their iron shod wagon wheels, agricultural tools. The wagon had a long list of associated material as well. There were trek ropes, leather straps, leather bags, and juke, which is a rope made from jute, a natural fiber that comes from the jute plant. Also, brooms and brake shoes for their wheels, tar and wagon parts like the disselboom, and so on. They also carried furniture, caskets, tables, flat stoves, felt chairs. But that's not all, folks. The trekkers were well prepared and had Tents and lanterns, soap, candles, ammunition, shaving kits, scissors, and tontuldosa, what is known as a tinderbox containing flint, fire steel, and tinder used together to help kindle a fire. They carried vegetable and fruit seeds as well as young plants in boxes to speed up growth in new lands. Other goods were 
Bibles and books, jewels, linen, lint, mirrors, snuff boxes, binoculars, walking sticks, tobacco and pipes, and last but by no means least, toys. Oh, well, that's the edited shortlist, dear listener. Having had occasion to travel long distances overland in Africa, I lobbed quite a few of these things myself into land cruisers, which then proceeded to travel at roughly the speed of an ox wagon, it appeared it was so heavily loaded. Next episode, we'll hear about Blood River, and why this battle remains one of the most seminal moments in Southern African history. If you can, please rate the series on iTunes. It helps raise the visibility. You can contact me at desmondlatham.blog or direct message me on X at deslatham. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.